Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Sessions podcast. Today, my guest is Anne Safi Biasetti. Anne maintains a private practice in Saratoga Springs, New York, specializing in somatic psychotherapy and eating disorder recovery. Her PhD is in transpersonal psychology and her license in clinical social work. She is an author and speaker on embodiment, women's empowerment, body image, self-compassion, mind-body duality, and recovery. She has led workshops at Kripalu, Shambhala Mountain Center, and has trained professionals through PESI and in her Befriending Your Body program of somatic recovery. Her first book, Befriending Your Body, A Self-Compassionate Approach to Freeing Yourself from Disordered Eating, was released through Shambhala Publications in August 2018. Anne also owns an embodied life yoga therapy training center. She is a certified yoga therapist, certified mindfulness teacher, and self-compassion teacher through the MSC program. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Jody. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to our conversation today. In my research for this interview, I realized that we have got a lot in common and especially our training, although um, I've only sort of recently discovered the somatic element in the last few years. So I can't wait to hear all about that. Can you please start to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and perhaps a bit about your own history and what led you to this work and writing your book? Sure, Jody. So um, as you had mentioned, I am a somatic uh, psychotherapist in private practice here in Saratoga Springs, New York in the US. And I have been working in that realm for probably about 15 years. My training, of course, was in a more Western clinical training. I had been a clinical social worker for 20 years and then decided midlife um, after three children and a full-time private practice to to go back from my doctoral work. And I'm glad I waited because at that point in time, I had already been working for so many years and I had already started my own self-discovery through embodiment, through the path of yoga and meditation and self-compassion work. And therefore, I had started my training and all my somatic training and my yoga therapy training. And I had noticed uh, what a huge difference it made in people's lives. So when I went back for my doctoral work, I wanted to make sure that I studied uh, what I wanted to research. Um, and mm. in the pr- program that I went to in transpersonal psychology, the beauty of that is that we really look at a person holistically, unlike some other programs of psychology. So it was a perfect fit for me. And it was there that I decided that what I would research since I had been specializing in eating disorder recovery for so many years already, I had anecdotally recognized the changes that were happening for my clients when I started applying self-compassion and self-compassion techniques. So I decided uh, to research the role that self-compassion played in the sustainment of recovery. Because as we know, in the world of recovery, people can touch and go recovery, I call it, touch and go recovery, where they may recover in behavior, but then they're really 
not free. So I wanted to address uh, the role that self-compassion played that for those who had sustained recovery for more than three years behaviorally. So according okay. to the standards. So I, um, it was a qualitative research and I interviewed 21 women. This was a study that focused on women's recovery. And from there, I found really uh, the, just the depth of the stories were beautiful and I knew halfway through through that qualitative research that I had to put this out there somehow. So mm. I knew that most likely this would turn into a book. And um, that's exactly how the book Befriending Your Body was born is after that research. And um, the research that I did was a qualitative research in a um, constructivist grounded theory. So what happens with that is you come out with a, a low level constructed theory of recovery. Mm. So this was a theory of uh, how self-compassion assisted every single step along the way through the whole recovery process from the very beginning when people felt extremely broken and lost to when they felt they were engaged in self-love. So that's a long journey. Yeah. So I thought it would be so very important to put this out into the world. And that's how that book was born. But my own history, mm. I certainly was interested in working from a young age with those with eating disorders uh, because myself at, at, as a teenager at 16, um, when I lost my father at that point in time, there was a lot of trauma that went on with his death. Um, I did grow up in a home with addiction. And mm. when he passed, he had been sick for many years. So there was a lot of trauma associated with his passing. And what I noticed was how lost I then felt in that moment and not understanding any of what was happening to me. And really at that point in time, my recourse was to start finding ways, right? Little did I know I was reaching out and finding ways to help myself in all this grief. And part of the way that um, I noticed, I felt a little bit more in charge of my life and, and felt a little bit of relief in that anxiety and that sadness was when I withheld food. Hmm. So that went on and, you know, the process of that. And this was so many years ago that really at that point in time, there wasn't a good understanding of eating disorders. There wasn't even an understanding of what I was going through. So doctor after doctor, nobody understood. My mother didn't understand. The rest of my family didn't understand. I didn't understand. And I write in the book that there are certain points in time that people may come to realize what exactly their body is saying to them, what exactly they're beginning to feel and notice. And for me, believe it or not, it was standing in a library one day mm. and picking a book off the shelf. <laughs> that was a book on eating disorders. And I started to read it. And when I saw myself in those pages, it mm. struck me. So I do write in, um, in the book that that was my first outside-in influence, I call it, mm. meaning how did I gain some compassion from something from the outside, right? So I saw myself in those pages. And really from there, I remember standing in that library crying, saying, I don't want to do this to myself. Mm. And I say often to my clients, and I have it in the book as well, where 
no one with an eating disorder means mm. to harm themselves. No one began this path as a way to harm. They only began this path as a way to help. Yeah, and, I wanted to come back and touch. That's really important yes. to note, isn't it? Because often yes. that gets lost in a lot of quite medicalized treatment, I think. Absolutely. And so that kind of weaves us in a little bit to my next question. And that's quite a sort of transpersonal view, I guess. And so for those who are listening to the podcast for the first time, or perhaps for anyone who is unfamiliar, which I think a lot of people are, because Mm -hmm. I don't know how, but transpersonal, certainly in Australia, transpersonal psychology has flown under the radar. And you've also written in your book, I believe recovery must extend into the realm of psyche and spirit, the part of self that lies dormant waiting to be awakened. So these might be new concepts for many women struggling with disordered eating and also for mental health and wellness practitioners, particularly those who work from a disease and illness model. Can you explain to people how you understand transpersonal psychology? Sure. So transpersonal psychology, just really its history was born from the humanists. Um, So if we go back to Eric Erickson and uh, Maslow and uh, Carl Rogers, so all the the folks that really started to look at a human um, in a, a more holistic fashion where they looked at a human as having the ability to have different realms of awareness. So we go through life, of course, with using our mind to assess and work our way through the world. However, in a more transpersonal view, we know that there are so many different levels of consciousness available to us. And actually, Mm. consciousness studies now back that up in a great way. So we look at other forms of knowing as being included in helping us to not only gain a sense of self, but live through this world in a more whole and embodied way. And Mm. that brings in the term embodiment as well, because in transpersonal psychology, one of the forms of consciousness or one of the other forms of knowing that we often do not tap into is this realm of information from the body. Mm. And when we talk about being um, that, that part of self that was always there, what I like to explain to folks is that, you know, you weren't born with all of these outside problems, issues, sufferings, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You weren't born with all of these things. We've collected these things along the way, right? And that is part of the reason why we want to begin to understand another level of self that actually is waiting for someone to see what happens, I think, mm-hmm. in eating disorder recovery is that someone could feel so broken. As a matter of fact, that's why I titled that first chapter, Feeling Broken, because in the interviews, that is probably the word I heard 100% of the time was the word broken. Uh, to, always, always. To, yes, to yep. talk about the beginning stage of recovery and what it's been like for folks. So what happens is we can get so identified with that we are unwell, Mm. right? That we are broken. There's something wrong with us that we lose the opportunity to understand that underneath the suffering, there is a separateness from this. There is a separate self that 
um, that was born pure and born whole in the in the spiritual traditions in in the Buddhist tradition we call that Buddha nature. Yeah, you know, there's this beautiful untouched self, and people can call it all different things, but the truth of it is that again, this was not always here. There's other ways to understand it, deeper ways to understand a sense of self, not just through our waking moments in the way that we usually use um, our mind to figure out the world. There are many other elements to call in that can help us formulate a greater sense of self. And I'm going to ask you about how and why this is important. But, you know, the minute you sort of talk about the baby, that's something in therapy that I often get clients to go back and imagine yourself as a baby. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think of this baby? And, and of course, most people see babies as completely pure and just pure delight and they haven't ever really thought of it like that before. So, so in terms of working in this way, why is this view on human suffering so important to those struggling with food, weight and body image concerns? Yes. So on the one hand, it's so important because it begins to help someone separate Mm. from what they have considered to be something that they are at fault about. And there's so much shame, as we know, attached to these disorders. So immediately we start to open up the door a little bit and get to hold this a little further away to start wondering and being curious about, okay, what else has happened here? So what I like to tell people from the start is there are so many factors at play you know, that in the development of an eating disorder. And what I often ask them to embrace is the journey of beginning to put the puzzle pieces together in Mm. this depth of self-understanding. And we say from the start, you know, out of fairness, eating disorders really are a way to find internal connection again. Mm. So they're a way to find to put pieces together that have been unbalanced. Something has been dysregulated, both in your body, your mind, your soul. Something has been dysregulated, and we're here to find a way to bring that back into balance. So I use that word a lot for folks because they Mm -hmm. really understand it, it, the felt sense of it. They can understand uh, the felt sense of that. They often come into my office and say, I feel so out of balance, you know, my mood is unbalanced, my body's unbalanced. So that word is a very familiar word. And I really like to jump on that and say, yes, you're absolutely correct in what you're noticing. So now we're going to start to put these pieces together because recovery is not just about recovering a weight, right? Or beginning to eat again. Recovery is about so much more than that. It's about how do we begin to regain balance in your entire life altogether. Yeah, I I always say that sort of refeeding and coming out of a treatment program, for example, where it's just been the sort of regaining weight and then the real work begins. (laughs) That's right, exactly. (laughs) Then the absolute really challenging work begins, Mm -hmm. right? Because I, I, uh, you know, I I just put a little uh, Instagram post out the other day that said, you know, recovery is not just about learning how to eat again. It's about learning how to have a relationship 
with food. Absolutely. Right? So we're learning a relationship with food, a relationship with these bodies that we've been disembodied from, mm -hmm. and a relationship with ourselves again. Yeah, getting absolutely. To know, getting to know ourselves when uh, getting to know another part of ourselves rather than just the part that we believe is unwell. You know, that's obviously take some time and time in therapy and, and through, right. through yoga and other sorts of things, which we'll obviously get onto later. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into something that you said about your own journey. And mm -hmm. in your book, you write, I withdrew into deep darkness and became isolated in my own pain. The more anxious I became, the more my stomach reminded me of my pain and suffering. It was easier to focus on my weight and food than what I did not wish to feel and think about. My body was attempting to tell me the truth. Mm. So your book speaks about the body and your body as not just something to be healed or restored, but as a great source of wisdom and knowledge. And I, and I know that this is going to be not new for some people, but for a lot of people struggling, mm -hmm. even just with diet, you know, chronic dieting and, and issues yes. like that, that this is going to be a new concept for them. So can you say more about that? Sure. Yeah. It comes back to that other realm of knowing oneself or another realm of consciousness, right? Mm. That embodiment or actually the simple term of embodiment, simple definition, I should say, is living our life connected through our sensory feeling, sensory door of our body. So living through our senses, understanding what our body is offering us. And I'll go more into that is another source of self-knowledge. Mm. So when we start to pay attention to our bodies as having actually a sense of wisdom here, knowledge that it can offer us, then all of a sudden we have a whole other realm of, of something to pay attention to. I often say this in therapy, you know, how do you welcome your client's body into the room, right? We mm. welcome people into the room all the time, but what is happening in their body? And what I feel is missing and has been missing for such a long time in eating disorder treatment is this whole realm of embodiment. People are trying, this is a disordering, right? This is a dysregulation that has happened and is taking place through someone's physical and sensory system. Mm. And that's all our clients talk about, right? My stomach hurts. Mm. I feel my heart is racing. My mind is racing. You know, they feel physical symptoms happening, but yet we don't know what to do with all of that, right? And what mm. I say is that is such prime information for us to understand because when someone is talking on that level what they're really saying is i'm getting messages from my body i just don't know how to interpret them yeah you know if we think about uh, i'm just thinking about anxiety at the moment because obviously with coronavirus going yes. on that's really yes. beefed up that most people get sort of very stuck in their head about it but actually once you start to look at it it's, it's typically in the stomach or in the chest absolutely or, and actually, historically, it's been worked on with, with the mind and just sort of change your thinking and, you know, that sort of cognitive behavioral sort of piece. But Absolutely. One thing I just, I didn't ask you this in advance, but just mm -hmm. something you mentioned then around how the therapist welcomes the body into the room and just thinking about, you know, you only have to sort of look at online groups when people post about, say, someone trying to lose weight. And there is always such a debate on 
therapist's views on whether we should be supporting mm. you. And so when I think about welcoming bodies into the room, I think for therapists, there's a lot of work to be done there too around their own body, their own perceptions of bodies, mm-hmm. welcoming the body in. Absolutely. Huge amount of work on that level. I do believe that, especially if we're working with those who are struggling this way and quite honestly. This is what I also say all the time when I do women's retreats. It's really difficult to find anyone, even someone that doesn't have an eating disorder, who doesn't have a body image issue, Yeah. right? Uh, Women primarily. Um, As a matter of fact, the feminist theorists say that just by nature of being female in our culture, Mm -hmm. we are all disembodied. So therapists do have to take a look at that themselves as well, because we are part of that. You know, we are all part of that. Everyone struggles to some degree with body image. Um, Mm -hmm. Our own self-perception will be somewhat distorted distorted. And it's very important to do that work because if we are going to move our clients away from image and back into sensory processing and Mm. sensory awareness, then we have to be able to recognize when we aren't living there ourselves. Absolutely. And so, you know, when we're talking about embodiment, you also wrote in your book, Bodies are considered either through the medical lens of health, wellness and disease, or through the objectified lens of what we look like. It is rare that our bodies are focused on as a great source of spirit, soul and knowledge. And you just touched on that, but what what do you see as the cause of this split and the disconnect? Sure. Yeah. It's one of the most important things uh, that I teach about, I feel, when it comes to embodiment. We really have to go way back in understanding this is really a whole paradigm that began back when the philosophers were wrestling with the question of really what makes up a self. Is it the mind or is it the body? You know, this duality began. Uh, Everyone I think has heard of the philosopher Rene Descartes and his famous uh, statement of, I think, therefore Mm. I am. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago. We're talking back into about around 1650 or so when he came out with that statement that really what they were wrestling with was how do we reach higher level mind states. And really at that point in time came the idea that it was only through the rational mind that the body actually, and all of its sense desires, everything I just said before that helps us with knowledge. At that point in time, they saw the body sense desires as pulling them away from rational thought and rational action Mm -hmm. um, because of all of these uh, desires that they witnessed going awry. So, at that point in time came this whole idea and belief system that the body really was just an object to be studied and worked on and observed, but that it really did not offer any self-knowledge whatsoever. And the sad part about that is that, as I said, it's a whole paradigm, you know, that has taken hold, especially in the Western world and has influenced everything from the medicalization of bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Our whole medical Mm -hmm. system, our mental health system as well. Never was I taught in my clinical training 30 years ago about the body at all. So it has influenced our mental health in a great way as well, that all of our 
learning can come and all of our health and healing can come just through the door of the mind and have nothing to do with this realm at all. And of course, spirit, we don't bring in at all. Yeah. Even holistic, yeah. when they say they're holistic, you know, you sort of dive a bit deeper. It says physical, mental, and social. And I'm thinking, that's well, right. where's the spiritual? <laughs> that, that's, that's, not, right. that's not holistic. Exactly. And often when people touch um, embodiment, meaning that when they start to get a sense of themselves from the inside out like that, all of a sudden they start to use words such as I feel, I feel connected. I feel mm. at peace. I feel home. As a matter of fact, yeah, at the home. end of the book, when I talk about self-love, I use that word yep. because that's the word I heard people say the most is that really when they started connecting deeply like that, no longer to the surface body, meaning just body image, but when they really started um, listening to the messages their body was giving them, all of a sudden they felt like they found a new friend again, hence the name of the book, Befriending Your Body. And there's another giant aspect to this now that backs this up in a big way. It's part of the reason I really love neuroscience because now I can back up everything that I've been teaching for a long time with neuroscience because what we also know is that when we listen deeply to the sense organs of the, you know, the sensory awareness of the body, um, everything that we're sensing from our organs, everything that we're noticing, even things like our breath and the temperature of our body, we are actually enlivening a part of the brain that guess what has everything to do with the development of a sense of self and a sense Mm -hmm. of who we are. It actually Mm -hmm. helps us answer that question. And that's why I say, why would we ever leave the body out of Mm. recovery from a disorder that one feels broken from a sense of self, right? Uh, You know, on the front page of my website, I've got come home to your true self and that coming home, you know, is so important because when you, I mean, at a very basic level, it is the home that we live in from the moment of conception until the moment we die. That's (laughs) right. Exactly. And I often use that, and you were saying before about Mm. the baby and Mm. bringing someone to that image. Well, I like to bring people all the way back to themselves and actually getting, I like my clients to get a, um, even if they have to ask family members or whatever, to get a sense of how they came into this world what were their nervous systems like you know were they sensitive bodies to begin with you know because we come into the world again with no higher thought process and no vocabulary at that point but yet Mm. a baby knows everything it needs in that moment only through sensory knowledge that's it yeah absolutely so I guess, where do we start in terms of healing? So, you know, for many women out there stuck on the merry-go-round of weight cycling, emotional eating, and I I guess I want to say too around eating disorders, I I suspect you probably hold a similar view to me and that obviously the DSM has a very strict criteria. Yes. There's, you know, when we're talking about weight cycling, emotional eating, binge eating, extreme clean eating, they're all kind of on the spectrum for me. That's right. So many women, you know, they've suffered deeply for many, many years. You know, some people, I think with, in some ways, anorexia gets picked up a lot faster, but people who are emotional eating and binge eating, 
bulimia, it tends to, I think, can go on for a lot longer undetected. So they're often caught in self-destructive patterns. And by the time they end up at therapy with us, they're swimming in a sea of despair. They're exhausted. And often a lot of people are like, oh God, now I've got to try and do the recovery work as well. How do they begin to heal and, and sustain recovery from, from your perspective? Oh, well, yeah, as we know, hope is such an important piece, right? Yep. And yep. I often say that uh, as therapists, you know, when I supervise other therapists, I say all the time, really, we're the holders of hope for quite a while mm. and working with this because I do like my clients to understand from the start how much they've been dealing with for how long, mm. you know, when I take people into um, these questions that start to help them explore the relationship with their body and when that went awry for them, when that went off for them, when they lost that free and freedom feeling in their body. Mm. Really, that's a very big question, a very big self-reflective question that often takes people back to when they were four, five, six years old. And it's a moment like that, that we sit in great compassion together. Mm. Uh, when I have them say, you see, no, this did not begin just when you thought it began with yep. food and the disorder. This began so long ago when you lost that freedom or when someone shamed your body or when you remember, you know, having to hide that food or when you remember feeling so lonely that food yeah. was your only companion. You know, these are such deep, deep, very, very, you know, uh, need to be held so compassionately, very fragile pieces that need to be held with such great compassion. And that's where the work of self-compassion really mm -hmm. helps this process of self-understanding because without that kind of compassion, this understanding goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, from the beginning, I like people to understand that, yes, we are working in this present moment, helping them to heal, but we also want to really widen this understanding and, and bring into perspective here how long this has been happening. And just let's take a moment with that, how long their body has been carrying this for them, right? Yeah. And how long they have been working so hard to find a sense of internal balance and regulation. And that's what we're here to do. You know, this is such an important topic because often you do get looking at the sort of when the onset of the eating disorder proper, I, I would say, mm -hmm. started, you know, 12, 13, mm -hmm, something, mm -hmm. 15. But when we do look back and hear stories, you know, when you go back and take a, an early childhood history, uh, even from my own perspective, I mean, I think I remember opening the fridge door at three or four and just staring mm. into the fridge mm -hmm. and, and then going between the fridge and the pantry and, and looking for something, but not quite, obviously at, at that age, not knowing what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And then by five, you know, the school for a kindy school photo thinking I'm going to go and stand next to the fat boy because then I won't look so fat. Mm -hmm. So these kind of mm -hmm. things can start way, way, way back. And I've even had a friend say that her mother commented often on how fat she was as a baby. 
Yes, absolutely. And I hear those stories all the time. And I think of it even myself. And and this is a little bit of a twist too, um, that I wanted to share because some Mm. folks may not understand this piece. But a lot of times we're, we're very focused on that eating disorders develop as a way for someone to lose weight, right? Mm. And I have in my own personal story, um, I come from the opposite end where I was always a smaller body. And, you know, I just say that, yes, oh, the real disordering began after that trauma, after my father died and what have you. But really, when I look back on it, I was a young girl who was tormented and teased a great deal about my body for it being so small and invisible. I used to be called invisible in elementary school and middle school. And I was teased a great deal. So I make this point because I want people to understand that disembodiment happens at all sizes. Yes, absolutely. So the moment we are taken away, the moment we are shamed for Mm -hmm. being in whatever body we are in, we then start to lose that sense of self. This is really important and this might yes. be controversial <laughs> um, yes. now, now yes. that you bring this in because there's a lot <laughs> of comments in the Health at Every Size and Disordered Eating mm-hmm. that you have been sitting in white, thin privilege. So regardless yes. of whether yes. you have had that yes. experience, it's still not as bad as someone who is being fat yes. shamed. And yes. I, I'm someone in a big body, so I'm completely okay with asking about that. Absolutely. And, you know, just because you are in a smaller body, I don't think it makes that shame any less toxic and crippling. Well, and I'm glad you asked the question because yeah. this I do have to say that this is where any retreat that I ever teach to women mm. on, um, on body and, and body image, I start off by acknowledging my privilege, mm. right, that mm. I am a thin white female and have lived in this body. And I will share this story of my own body shame, but here mm. is the difference. I tell them all the time is that where it was still a privilege is I got to walk away from those shaming me and come out into the larger world and larger circle. And Mm. guess what? I was revered then. And that is the difference. My eating disorder went completely undetected because I was in this small body and, oh, and that was, you know, I was, that was in the eighties when models were rail thin. And so everyone wanted my body. So on the one hand I was teased and on the other hand, coming out into the larger circle, I was revered. And as confusing as that was, I was able to escape. I was not in a marginalized body in the yep. larger world. Yes. Yep. And that is the big difference in that privilege. Yes. Yeah, I see. So when we think about recovery, so you, we're, you're touching on embodiment and self-compassion. Mm-hmm. What does that actually look like? So for someone just starting you know, maybe listening today, thinking, okay, you know, I'm struggling. Where do I begin? Mm-hmm. So I like folks. So one of the questions that I have people reflect on right from the start, and I have this in chapter one, is we start to ask different questions around what does health mean? What does health and strength mean to them? Mm-hmm. And I love asking those questions because initially everyone will answer through the mind, right? Through And basically everyone usually answers through dire culture, which is of what course. dire culture has taught us about health and strength, right? But I'm talking about those questions now from a very different 
different angle and I'm asking them to um, start to look at those questions through the angle of you wake up in the morning, what areas of your body feel strong today? How do you know that? What's your energy level like? Are you tired? Are you wakeful? You know, do you have a racy mind? Is your mind feeling slow and dull? You know, what, um, what's your breathing like at this point? Do you feel like you can take a deep breath? Is it shallow? So we start looking at health and strength from the messages we are getting from our body. So I wow. should say three of the messages we are getting from our body. And those are the only answers I want mm -hmm. to know. Okay. I want to know, you know, there are days, so there may be time periods throughout the day that they are feeling stronger and quote unquote healthier, meaning more balanced. So we start bringing all those words into it. So health and strength mean feeling balanced internally through your body, through your mind, right? energy mm. level, even the temperature of your body, right? Mm. If you're cold and shivering all the time from not enough nourishment, you know, your body is telling you something about yeah. its level of health. And so I want to know all those questions now based on that sensory knowledge, no longer what we think about it. And this, even as you're saying that, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is so simple at one level but so different from what yes. we, I mean we've we've all you know I mean I know with my kids obviously having had a history of an eating disorder I'm I'm trying to be obviously as aware as I can in terms of yeah. their own food but even just saying to them listen to your body what does your body say it's yes. so alien from what we grew up with and what many people out there you know obviously looking at Instagram wellness warrior yes. and telling them what to eat and telling them how they should be eating. But, you know, to wake up in the morning and to just listen to your body go in terms of health just goes against everything that people are being taught. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And this is such a big piece uh, because as we know, intuitive eating is such a, a, a very big piece in the world now of nutrition, which is wonderful. But I always say with intuitive eating, one of the things we have to do do first is we have to be able to get in touch with our sensory knowledge first. Yes. Um, so we have to be able to get in touch with something that I teach all the time, which is interoceptive awareness, which is our bodily signals. Because when we've had ongoing behavior that has disrupted that for a long time, those signals are crossed. Those signals are not registering properly. So the more we can begin to start our day asking those kinds of questions, the more we are awakening all that proper firing of the messages that we need to eventually move into something like intuitive eating. And I, I just want to detour onto that as well, because I think yeah. I often say to people, if intuitive eating was that easy, we'd all be doing it. We'd all be thin. Yes. We'd all be... You know, That's but actually there's a real, the word sorrow comes to mind because again, people who have been, you know, say chronic sort of yo-yo dieters, for example, all of a sudden it's, oh, just eat intuitively. And they actually feel like they've failed at that as well. Yes. Because, and it's missing that piece that you're talking about, that sort of yeah. earlier piece before they can get to that. That's right, because we also have to keep in mind that, you know, we take someone who's been yo-yo dieting, we know what the mm -hmm. root is underneath that. The root is often, you know, a fat phobia and wanting to lose weight. So then if we take that and then bring them into intuitive eating and they're not losing weight, then mm -hmm. that becomes a whole other, you know, so what I say to that is, no matter what we want to call it, we cannot skip over developing a relationship with the body from the inside. 
Oh, that is, that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Or challenging. <laughs> yes, very challenging. <laughs> I have, you know, I, I have a program and the first half of the program is mm. all of this work, right? Mm. It's all, and boy, is it hard. And, and so there's a statement we say from the very beginning of the program, I tell everyone, you know, again, out of fairness, this is hard. That's all mm. we keep saying. This is hard because it's very hard. I am asking people to come to develop a relationship with something that they've most likely have not only been cut off from, but yep. have hated, have hated yep. and loathed for a long time. We've yeah, blamed that these bodies. That's right. We've blamed these bodies for a lot. And now I'm asking them, I'm actually telling them that, oh, I know the thing that you've blamed for so long is actually, believe it or not, your hidden friend. Mm. You know, it's actually your freedom. But that's very challenging to have someone's mind wrap around when they've seen it as the enemy all these years. That kind of leads us into the second part of sort of recovery around uh, self-compassion, because yes. obviously that is something that is going to be needed needed in very big doses. So how do you awaken and sort of really translate that into action, I guess? Well, one of the pieces that um, I engage uh, folks to understand all the time is that they really, I've never met anyone, and I think, Jody, you could probably attest to this too, that mm. I've never met anyone that I've worked with that has struggled with any form of disordered eating who isn't one of the kindest people that, oh, I've, yeah. ever, that I've met, right? So well, usually, to, to others. Exactly. <laughs> so usually I ask in a group, how many of you here, you know, would consider yourselves, you know, the helping hand, the person who, and everyone raises their hand. And I said, you know, what that means is, you know, your ability to care for someone else actually means that you have a really large seed of self-compassion mm. within waiting for you. Yeah. And that's the thing is that they're so practiced in care of others. And all I say is that's all self-compassion is, is it's a practice only it's a practice of now moving that care towards self. So it takes time. And again, when someone is feeling very shameful and someone is feeling uh, very, uh, you know, again, that self-loathing that comes up after years, it's not an easy thing to do. But the way I like to have everyone look at it is that we're not talking about big steps here. We are talking about the tiniest little things. So asking yourself, even tuning in and saying, what is my body temperature today? Or what messages am I getting from my body today? Guess what? That's attunement. That is compassionate. You know, uh, anyone who has a child, I say, if your child, you know, came and, you know, in the morning, if you look at your child and say, good morning, honey, how you doing? You know, just doing that to ourselves by asking these little questions. That's the beginning road of self-compassion. It doesn't have to sound so fluffy. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't have to sound all self-care jargon and what mm -hmm. have you. Mm -hmm. Just beginning to acknowledge oneself on that level is compassion. I guess what I want to say in, in there is, you know, I know a lot of people, obviously, when they're in these early sort of stages, if you sort of say to them, you care, you know, you care a lot for others and it's time to turn that sort of around, a lot of people will say that is selfish, it is self-indulgent. Yes. I'm also thinking, I'm linking back to sort of attachment and developmental trauma in terms of never having had their needs met. So to yes. to actually turn 
that sort of care towards themselves is a really, really big step for most people, actually, I think. Yes, it is. It's a very big one. And that's where, you know, we have to take it very slow. So in the mindful self-compassion program that I'm trained in, we often begin the self-compassion training with moving right on in to care of self, you know, moving Mm. right into self-kindness. But what I do with those who are struggling with eating disorders is we start and we keep working what we call one of the other components of self-compassion, which is common humanity, Mm. which is the understanding that guess what? We are all in this similar path of suffering in some way or the other, right? We have this connection and we have this connection to trying to alleviate the suffering of somebody else. So Mm. I'd like them to just understand that they have a deep care to alleviate the suffering of others. And that at some point, we are going to begin to turn that around, but we're going to do it slowly. So I actually work a little backwards with it. Mm. We take those steps really slowly. And that may translate into things such as I have young women who find a great deal of help toward themselves by starting a really body positive Instagram account, let's say, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or a food positive Instagram account where they are putting out and guess what, then they're helping others. And that helping of others is awakening that seed even more. I have others who are, let's say they're in their college and they have started a support group or they have just started talking to friends and recognizing eating disorders in their friends. So all that sort of outside help like that is just a constant reinforcement of that eventual self-care. So we start there in that common humanity, and then we work into building up their self-awareness, which is that self-understanding. And then we come to all that self-kindness. So it takes time. I don't Mm. expect people to just take that on. And some of what I say is we're still going to use the words of self-compassion. But what I say is uh, right now you're going to just keep using those repetitive words over and over. We're going to start changing up the language that we use because those words are powerful and you don't have to believe them right now. You're just going to have them hang around. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I have them write certain words or phrases down on index cards or put it up around them just as little reminders, something like that out of fairness you're dealing with a lot. And as you're talking, something that's really coming through for me, which um, I'm sure is, you know, I'm not sure, well, I'm 100% sure actually, (laughs) your compassion for these women, just Mm -hmm. even in the way that you're describing all this, I imagine such good modelling for them and actually probably they're experiencing that, I know in my own practice for the first time, to have someone so caring and loving and compassionate and that that relationship that you're having with these women yes. is really really important i can even just yeah. in your tone the way you're talking it's so soothing i'm thinking oh that's so nice <laughs> <laughs> thank you and but you did you bring up such an important piece though because 
self-compassion is relational work yeah and somatic work is relational work because guess what with somatic work i am watching my clients deeply at all times Mm. so if their body is tensing up you know we stop in that moment i say you know something i just recognized something happening did you recognize that did you Mm. feel that you know and so that kind of attunement is the repair of what you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. So self-compassion work and embodiment work, somatic work is extremely reparative of early attachment and and it's extremely relational work. That's what it is. We're there with each other. And so that is, yes, you're right. The modeling starts from the Mm. very beginning in certain words that are used and the way we change up the whole framework of what they're coming in for. Like I said earlier, just to say to someone, oh, I see. So you're here to seek more internal balance with Mm. me. And that's the work Mm. we're doing. I mean, that's a whole different frame than, okay, you're here for eating disorder recovery. Oh, let's check your food diary. Why haven't you eaten this? And oh my God, I think it's um, Lisa Ferenz. She said the worst, the worst way to start eating disorder recovery is with a food diary because it just sets yes. up this battle. It sets up this battle right. of, That's you right. know, but anyway, so do you have something that our listeners today can, I mean, oh, there's so much to take away already, but is there something practical that you could share with them? Sure. Yeah. So there's a a little practice in my book that I I love for folks to engage in right away. I think I think I have it in chapter one. I call it a feet, spine and seat. Mm -hmm. And it's a simple, simple little embodied uh, practice that folks can use any time that they're starting to feel very anxious. I really encourage my clients to use it before they eat as a way to come into the present moment and to feel more connected to their body and what they're experiencing. So if you'd like, I could give a quick guide around that. I'd love that. that. Perfect. So what I do ask people to do is to either gently uh, fix their eye gaze downward or they can close their eyes because that helps us to tune in better when we have either our eyes fixed at a gaze or, or closed. And take a deep breath in through your nose and then exhale through your mouth. I call that the release breath or the reset breath. It really just helps to reset the moment there. So I like folks to take a couple of rounds of that. And then draw your attention down to your feet. And it's preferable if you could have shoes off so you can feel the ground, but it's not necessary. You can also have shoes on. But draw attention down to your feet and just roll to all corners of the feet. And now see if you can press down firmly, as firm as possible, into the ground. And now I'd like you to just follow the sensation that builds. So as those feet are pressed down, just start to follow the sensation that travels up into the lower half of the legs and then into the upper half. And if you keep traveling and following that line of sensation that builds, you may even notice how pressing down like that starts to change up your seat and your whole back body. And we'll keep traveling that up through the length of the spine, just noticing what happens to each vertebra there as it begins to expand and lengthen. And travel up all the way to the crown of your head, 
We'll stay for a moment here. Take a deep breath in and exhale. And as you exhale, we can soften that and let your attention go back to your feet. And then you can start this process on your own, just gently pressing into the feet, following the line of sensation all the way up through your spine, feeling that pressing and that grounding through your seat. And exhale. And again, inhaling, pressing through the feet, traveling up through the length of the spine. Feel that grounding beneath your seat. And exhale. And then just taking a moment to notice. Uh, I like people to just gather a couple of words that come into the mind quickly so that we don't take a lot of time to figure out or analyze just a couple of words even if they don't make sense of what that experience was like and then as you're ready you can come to open your eyes wow simple very simple it's i actually did that while we were while you were taking us through it it's amazing sitting in the body you you don't realize until you refocus like that i mean my i realized as doing that how uncomfortable i'd been sitting here like hunched yes. over the, the microphone <laughs> and and then when you said that it was like oh wow you know that feels but, really yeah really coming back into my body that's right that's right and i often uh, will tell therapists that that's a great one to just start your session with you know yep, when someone yep. comes on in and it's a, because guess what you can practice that together with your client you're both in it it's such a lovely welcoming i call it welcoming the body into the room you know it's a, it's a lovely feet spine and seat welcome the body into the room it's a lovely way for both of you to begin with one another and as i said for most of my clients what they do experience and notice with it is that it just brings them to the moment so it's such a more powerful place for them to be when they're approaching food and being with food and learning how to develop that new relationship is we want them to at least be present in that moment to what yeah. they're experiencing in their body. Yeah. It's so important because most people to therapy or to food, whatever, there's, there's often a, a stress that's happened on the way here. Right. Or I'm thinking about in eating disorder treatment centers, how stressful it is to begin eating yes. again. And, and just for people who we know that that sort of stress response, actually, I studied eating psychology and, you know, we, we talk about the stress response sort of yes. even damages the quality of the food that we're eating Absolutely. because the cortisol going through the body. So even just coming back to that before one starts to eat is going to have a positive impact. Absolutely. And, you know, that's such an important piece, you know, because then we, you know, we know our clients are struggling so much with their physiological reactions to food if they mm. haven't been if they've been restricting for a while. And so the last thing we want to do is add more stress in the system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're nearly coming to an end. Often I see in my practice, you know, when someone first comes that that teeny tiny healthy self gets them to therapy. And then we're obviously working with the underlying issues often rooted in childhood trauma. Something you have yeah. dedicated a whole chapter to yes. is the belief around whether or not we are worthy of healing. And yes. so if someone's listening today and they've been thinking, 
that's all great, but it can't happen for me or I don't deserve to eat or it's okay for other people to accept their size, but not for me. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them? Well, what I say to them is I keep bringing them back to that tiny, tiny little sliver mm. of healthy self that brought them in. And, you know, I keep saying, because I, I often am someone's second or third therapist, you know, after they've gone to folks who maybe haven't seen things in this way. Yep. And, yep. Um, and so I often begin there where I say, you know, there's something that brought you my way. There's There's something within you telling you that you have been trying for so long in one way, in one direction, and now you're ready. You're ready for something different. And so we really focus on that and that part of self that knows that there is another way that hasn't been tried yet. And Mm. that's what we're here to do. Oh, that's beautiful. Look, I've got to say, this is, I've read a lot of eating disorder books over the last, uh, when did I go into recovery? I think it was 90, 95. So I have read a lot of books. Uh, Yours is my favorite. (laughs) Thank you, Jody. I just really, you know, obviously studying transpersonal psychology as well. It's really lovely to see eating disorders written in this way and, uh, you know, around befriending the body and, I believe you have an online course and uh, would you share with people how they can find you, uh, find your course, your book? Sure, absolutely. So the book is available at all uh, usually major bookstores, Amazon. And as far as my website and all the information about the course that I lead, it's www.anembodiedlife.com. And there they'll find all information on the work that I do. And also what I have on that page that I really like people to take a look at is I have a whole page of free resources Mm -hmm. and there they can um, download any of the meditations for free. There's other podcasts, including uh, this one will be on there as well. Things that I've written, articles and all other resources that may support them in their path. And that's uh, all available to them at all times. And the eight-week program is a virtual program, so I mm-hmm. am uh, allowing people to come on in from all over, which has been a really lovely path, and that is um, a psychoeducational somatic recovery eight-week program. Oh, perfect. And you're on Instagram as well. I've yes. obviously seen you there and Facebook. So what I will do is I'll put the link, uh, the links for all those in the show notes when this episode goes live. Perfect. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for coming. I just know that uh, people out there who are struggling are going to get so much from your many, many years of wisdom and your own personal experience. And and the fact that you've got a whole heap of free resources on your website, that's fantastic. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me, Jody. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, you too. This is episode four. You can find the show notes for this episode at thesoulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions for befriending your body thanks for listening bye for now thank you for listening to the soul sessions podcast loved this episode head over to itunes to subscribe rate and leave a review it's very much appreciated thank you to learn more about how you can befriend your body feelings mind and soul get jody's free 65 page ebook at the soul until next time